Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to um, give you a little bit about the context, give you a little information about the context in which Paul is writing. The Galatians, uh, the, Galatia is a region. It's not a city. It's a region made up of uh, no, numerous cities. We know in Acts chapter 13 and 14 that uh, it was, we know of Paul's first time in that region. He had some very difficult uh, circumstances associated with his visit to that region, but he had some miracles too. He was um, chased out of one city, the city of Iconium. He was chased out of that city because the Jews in, uh, uh, in the, the city stirred up trouble against him when Paul began to preach salvation through faith in Jesus and not according to the law. And so he left that one town, went over into another town, Lystra, the cities of Lystra and Derby. And, uh, and he had some miracles there. It tells us in Acts chapter 14 about a crippled man that was healed in, uh, in Lystra by hearing the gospel preached, what Jesus had done for us, not only spiritually, but for what uh, benefit that brought to our physical bodies. And, uh, and he had miracles there. And then the people from the um, towns that he had just been run out of uh, sent a delegation over to the, the towns where Paul had gone to, and they stoned him and left, for, left him for dead. But the Bible tells us that the believers gathered around him and prayed. It doesn't specifically say so, but it kind of implies uh, or at least suggests that uh, he was raised from the dead and he went back into the, the other towns where he had just been chased out of. And uh, I'm sure that had quite an impact on his return visit. It had quite an impact on those cities. Now, Paul, many years later, is writing back to the Galatians. We know that there was a, um, a large Jewish uh, contingent that made up the church of uh, these cities in Galatia. And also there was a, a large Jewish community that we don't know of that got saved but were, were um, influential and, and kind of ran herd over everything spiritual in, the, in these uh, cities. Paul finds out here somehow or another the reports that the, the Jews have gotten uh, into the, the churches and commanded the people, told the people that, that they needed to, faith in Jesus is fine, but you still have to keep the law of Moses. And so Paul is writing back to them about the condition that he's heard that they've uh, come into. Beginning in verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who have bewitched you? that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently sent forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So you can see that the Jews are trying to command the, the people influence the, the Christians, the, the Gentile believers, that they had to keep the law of Moses and, and all that kind of stuff. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Now, he knows the answer, and he knows everybody's going to know the answer to the question, did you receive the spirit? Did you get born again? Did you receive the things of God when I was with you and among you and taught you by keeping the law or by hearing of what Jesus did and accepting it by faith? Well, the answer for that, to that for everybody is hearing by faith. That's the only way you can receive anything from God. So he knows they know that. So then he brings up the point, if that's true, since that's true, why are you letting so many people, all these people, tell you that you have to add something to your faith when it didn't get you anything before you found out about Jesus anyway? 
Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Verse 6, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now I want you to notice verse 5. He asked specifically about working of miracles and ministering the Spirit. I, I think we have to assume by that, uh, by that statement or the way that he phrases that, ministers the Spirit just mean, must mean manifestations of the Spirit. He's saying, does the Spirit manifest himself because you keep the law? Does God do miracles among you because you keep the law? That's the question he's asking. Now I want to read this to you from Moffat's translation. And um, let me back up here for a minute too. I think I've come to see that a lot of the um, instruction that the Bible gives to us. Well, let me say it this way. Nearly everything that Paul writes to the church in the letters in the New Testament is in response to what he hears or has heard is going on in some of the churches. Now, it's interesting to me that the Holy Ghost would give him instruction that would apply to the church today, 2,000 years later, going through similar situations, if not the same ones. And he shows us by the principles, the spiritual principles, which we can apply to our situations, whether they're exactly the same or similar or whatever the case might be. The Holy Ghost gave instructions that would fit the church then because of the situation they were going through and the same thing will apply to us by the instruction of the Holy Ghost today. So let me read this to you from Moffat's translation because I think a lot of time we get tripped up by the formality of the King James uh, English. But here's what Paul writes. When he supplies you, talking about God, when he supplies you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, is it because you do what the law commands or because you believe in the gospel message? Now, I want you to notice verse 6. Here's Moffat's translation in verse 6. King James says, even as Abraham believed God. Well, I'm not sure we really get the import of what he's saying. Moffat brings it out. Let me read this again. When he supplies you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, is it because you do what the law commands or because you believe the gospel message? Why, it is as with Abraham. He had faith. Here's what it's telling us. It's telling us, the Apostle Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost, here's exactly how God works miracles. Here's the way that God works miracles, and he'll work miracles every time for you, for me, for anybody else, no matter what time period we live in or what the, consequ- or the circumstances are. God works miracles by the faith of Abraham, even as Abraham believed God. In other words, the only faith that makes miracles to work is the Abraham kind of faith. And it'll work every time. Now, here's a question for you. We know Paul is writing to a church that's primarily Gentiles, although in the cities of Galatia, there's a, a large Jewish community. What do they know about Abraham? There was never any requirement then or now. I, I think it's helpful, but there's no requirement for us to take a Jewish history course to find out about Abraham. I think that's the real benefit of having the Old Testament because it gives us some of the information. But these people don't even have that. So Paul uses an example, the faith of Abraham. God works miracles in response to the faith of Abraham. 
And anybody can believe in the same way that Abraham did. But believing like Abraham did is necessary for the miraculous. It's necessary to receive from God. It's necessary to change things. The same kind of faith as Abraham. What do they know about Abraham? I think it's instructive for us to recognize. And and this is where some church history really becomes helpful for me at least. Because we see the faith of Abraham described in detail in Romans chapter 4. And the city of Rome was one place that Paul never was able to preach the gospel. He didn't start the churches in Rome. He writes to the churches in Rome that that, uh, were started by people that were his converts. So he's basically the spiritual grandfather of the churches in Rome. And the significance of that to me is since Paul never preached there on his own, in face-to-face, in person, he covers some things in the book of Romans that he must have preached to the other cities and the other places that he started churches. Well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, if we were writing to people that we knew were saved, knew, knew they were part of Aquila's and Priscilla's church or, or whoever other churches are there, we know they were some of them, but we don't know who, who everybody was. Gaius is one that's mentioned. But we don't know who all the churches, the house churches in uh, Rome were pastored by. But wouldn't it make sense that he would cover some things, cover some of the basics, cover some of the doctrinal foundational truths in the letter that he, the same truths, same doctrinal truths, same foundational principles that he would have preached in person to the other churches? Makes sense to me. And so he tells the Romans about the faith of Abraham. I'm going to turn now to Romans chapter 4 where he gives us the example of Abraham's faith. The point I'm trying to get across here, folks, is that Paul must have preached everywhere he went, everywhere he started a church at least. He must have preached in all of these cities where he started churches. He got people saved and started churches. He must have taught them about Abraham's faith. He must have used the example of Abraham's faith as the principle whereby you and I can receive from God on our own. He clearly identifies to the Galatians that it's the kind of faith that produces or we can say receives a miracle. And if it received miracles in that day, it'll receive a miracle in our day. He starts in Romans chapter 4 verse 17 as it is written. Well, let me back up to verse 16. He said, therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end. The promise might be sure to all the seed, but not to that only which is of the law but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham. Notice that phrase, the faith of Abraham. But to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, here's why he's the father of us all, as it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God. Before him whom he believed means like unto God. Abraham operated. The faith of Abraham was an imitation of the principle that God showed forth when he created the worlds through the word, spoken word. Here's how Abraham was likened to God. Before him or likened to him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth things that be not as though they were. Now I want to stop right there for a minute. This says specifically, the language is a little bit vague in the English, but if you go back and look at the original uh, Greek, 
the meaning of those words that are used, it's a lot clearer about Abraham was like God in this respect. Well, I don't have a problem with Abraham being like God, do you? Aren't we all supposed to be like God? Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, and he said, be imitators of your father, your heavenly father. Be imitators of God. We should be imitators of our father. We should act like our heavenly father. If we're born again, if we're born of the spirit of God, we should act like our father. We certainly know that children of the devil act like their father. And nobody bats an eye about that. So Abraham was like unto God in these two, two ways, two respects. He quickens the dead, makes dead things alive. And he calls those things that be not as though they were. Now, clearly this is talking about attributes and characteristics of God. God's the only one that can make anything dead that is dead to live. But the Bible says Abraham was an imitator of God in that respect. It gives Abraham credit for the quickening of the dead. But what did he make? What was dead that he made alive? Paul goes on to tell us, verse 18, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. So the dead thing that's being referred to and being spoken of in verse 17 is his physical body. Now, when it says it was dead, it's talking about dead as uh, reproduction, sexual activity and reproduction. I, I try to sterilize this the best that I know how every time that I talk about this. Basically, Abraham was so old, almost 100 years old, that he couldn't have sex anymore. And Sarah didn't care that he couldn't. His body was dead in that respect. And the scripture gives Abraham credit for quickening the dead. Now, you know as well as I do that there's no human ability, you, me, Abraham, or anybody, that has the power to make dead things live. So if Abraham's body came back to life in that respect in order to have the child of promise, it had to have been the power of God that did the work. But do you remember over in Mark chapter 5, it tells the story of the woman with the issue of blood there was a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague and straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up. Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched me? And the disciples said, Master, thou seest the multitude thronging thee and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked round about that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said, verse 34, Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 34, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now what healed her? Well, the Bible says that virtue or power, the healing power of God went out of Jesus into her. But Jesus credited her faith as doing the work. Daughter, your faith has made you whole. I wonder if that's what the Bible's talking about here with Abraham. I wonder if it was his faith and his, his imitation of God in this respect that triggered the power of God 
And the Bible is crediting him just like Jesus credited the woman with the issue of blood. Their faith that brought about the miraculous result. I can't see any other explanation. So how did Abraham imitate God to make the deadness of his body live again by calling things that be not as though they were? By calling things that be not as though they were. Back to Abraham's faith in Romans chapter 4. Verse 20, he said, he staggered not. It says, Abraham staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded. One translation says, absolutely convinced. And being absolutely convinced that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed into him for righteousness. Now, here's the point I want to make, and I want to make sure that I, uh, that I get it out clearly. This is the kind of faith that produces miraculous results. If you want a miracle from God, here's the pattern to follow. And this is exactly what Paul is writing to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3. He says, he that ministers the spirit and doeth miracles among you, talking about God, not talking about people. God who ministers the spirit does spiritual things, manifests the Holy Ghost among you and does miracles, works miracles. How does he do them or why does he do them? Does he do them because somebody walks according to the law? No. But he does them because somebody believes him like Abraham believed him. Even as, just like Abraham believed God. And that's why Paul gives the Romans, in my thinking, that's why Paul gives the Romans such detail, the complete picture of what the faith of Abraham is. And this is the kind of faith that will produce miracles or miraculous results every time. Not some other kind of faith, not being partially convinced, not doing everything Abraham did except calling things that be not as though they were. This is the kind of faith that works every time. It's like Mark eleven twenty four when Jesus talked about faith by praying. He said, therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. God honors the kind of prayer, the kind of faith, the prayer of faith that believes that it receives when it prays. Now, you can find a lot of people shaving the edges and the corners off of that. Well, I'm praying in faith. Well, did you believe that you received it when you prayed? Well, no, not really. I'm waiting to see how it turns out. That kind of faith never receives. It may be somebody's definition of faith, but it's not the faith that receives from God. There is no substitute for it, folks. God is under no obligation to hear and answer somebody's prayer that does not believe that he receives when he prays. He just did. And he tells us that he's not. He tells us. Jesus told us specifically, here's the kind of faith that receives from God. Here's the kind of faith that gets results. When you pray, believe that you receive the things that you desire and you shall have them. It's the only kind of prayer that, that can say with, with accuracy, can say definitively, this is the prayer that gets results. This is the prayer that gets answers. Because it's the same kind of faith as Abraham. Abraham had nothing, absolutely no physical circumstance that he could look at and say, here's how I know that God's word is true. He didn't stagger at the promise of God, but instead he kept his eyes on the promise of God and considered not his own body or Sarah's body dead 
to having children, even though they were. Even though physically, in physical reality, they were both dead to having children. But he did not let that circumstance, he did not let that fact hinder him from believing what God said. Now, folks, if you're going to get anywhere in faith, if you're going to get anywhere when it comes to receiving from God, you're going to have to learn something pretty quick. And that is there's a difference between facts and truth. There are a lot of facts that may exist in your circumstance. But the question is, what is the truth? Because the truth will always outlast and overcome the facts. It's a fact that Abraham's body was sexually dead. It's a fact that Sarah's body was sexually dead. It's a fact that they were beyond the age of bearing children. Those were facts. But did Abraham look at the facts? The Bible says he didn't consider them. He considered not his own body now dead, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. That doesn't mean that he denied the truth. It doesn't mean that he denied the facts that existed. It doesn't mean that he said, my body's not dead. No, this is just not the way that it's supposed to be. Instead, he chose to look at something other than the circumstances of his flesh. And he began to say things of himself that the facts did not support. But God's promise, the truth of God's promise revealed to him. He began to agree with God by using the name Abraham. God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of nations. God called him a father of nations, the father of nations, before anything ever changed in his body. So what does Abraham do? Well, he can go with the name that, that his mom gave him and continue to be Abram. I'm sure if it was a lot of people that I know that have said, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll keep calling myself Abram until we have this child that God promised and then I'll change my name. But it would embarrass me to, to call myself and for people to hear that I'm calling myself the father of nations when I don't have any children. That's not what he did. He called himself what God said that he was. He called those things that be not as though they were. You would expect a father of nations to have children, wouldn't you? That's kind of what father of nations is all about. Abraham called himself the father of nations before he ever had a child. Before Isaac was ever born. And in doing so, he was the imitator of God. He imitated God. He acted like God did. He acted like the way God operated was the true way to act. He began to call himself the father of nations. He began to call himself the father of nations. And instead of considering the facts of his own body or the facts of, of Sarah's body, he made a choice. He made a decision that we all have to make somewhere along the way if we're going to receive from God. We're going to have to consider whether or not God's promise is too great to fulfill. We're going to have to consider, we're going to have to answer for ourselves, is what God said outside the realm of possibility because it's too great. Or that would be staggering at the promise of God. Or are we going to do like Abraham did and looking under the promise of God? The American Standard Version says of this, verse 19, I think it is. But looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief. He's going to have to look at something. We all do. We're going to either have to look at the facts the physical facts, the physical realities that are in our flesh or in our circumstance, or we're going to have to pick something else to see. The Bible says Abraham 
looked unto the promise of God. He looked at what God said when he showed him the stars of the sky and said, so shall thy seed be. As it's recorded in verse 18, I believe. Against hope. He had no physical hope. He had no physical evidence to hope in. Against hope, he believed in hope according to what God had spoken. What did God say? He said, see the stars in the sky? So shall your seed be. He looked at that. He looked at that promise. He looked at that statement from God. That experience that he had with God when God showed him the stars of the sky. Didn't have to. Didn't have to show him that. Could have just said, now Abraham, I know it's going to be tough, but I'm going to give you a son. And since it's going to be tough and since the circumstances are so far against you, I tell you what, I'll just make it happen. You don't have to believe anything. But that's not the way it worked. Abraham became the father of faith, the father of faith because he chose to look only at the promise of God. Well, folks, no matter what you or I may have been told by the doctor, the word of God says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes were healed. Now, in the same way that Abraham did, you get a choice. It may be a fact that the doctor has diagnosed something in your body. That may be a physical reality. But what's the truth? The truth is Jesus paid the price for your sickness and mine. The truth is by Jesus' stripes you are healed. That's the truth. Now, it may not line up with the facts. But you're going to have to make a choice between the facts and the truth as to what you're going to look at. Because you're going to see one or two of the two of them. You can't look at both. You've got to make a decision which way you're going to turn your gaze. Abraham, it says, looking under the promise of God, staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being absolutely convinced, he absolutely convinced himself. God didn't do it. Abraham absolutely convinced himself. He reasoned it out for himself. God made promises to me when I was younger. Those promises have come to pass. This is the only one that hasn't come to pass yet. And this isn't any more difficult for God to bring about than the others were. So he made the choice to look under the promise of God and not waver, not stagger, not back, go back and forth. Is it working? Is it not working? What, shouldn't it be working by now? Shouldn't I feel something different in my body? Shouldn't it be? Hadn't it been long enough so far? He had, I'm sure he was tempted with all those things just like we are. But he kept his gaze on what God promised. I think a lot of people mess up or turn loose of their faith. Maybe that's a better way to say it. I think a lot of people turn loose of their faith because they can't understand it all. They can't reason it all out. I'm sure there were parts of Abraham's situation that he couldn't reason out either. I'm sure there were parts of the circumstances that he had where the devil would bring thoughts to his mind just like he brings them to yours and mine that challenged God, that questioned how is this going to work, that questioned when is it going to work, and so forth. All those things piled up against Abraham just like they pile up against us. And that's why Abraham's faith is such an example for us because here's the faith that works. Here's the faith that produces miracles. Here's the kind of believing God that always comes through, comes out ahead. Looking under the promise of God. Looking under the promise of God. Abraham staggered not through unbelief. Best way I know to keep from 
having doubt in your heart and to keep your confessions in the right way, saying the right thing, is not to turn loose of the word of God for anything. Not for a second, not for a moment in time. Abraham looked at the promise of God. He looked at the promise of God. He didn't look to his body. He knew what the situation was in his body. He didn't deny it, but he chose to look at something else. He chose to look at himself the way God said that he was. He chose to look at the word of God. He chose to remember the promise God made to him about the stars in the sky being like his children. He chose to keep his eyes focused on that. And as a result, he became absolutely convinced. Absolutely convinced. Absolutely convinced. I like how that uh, the Bible tells us in Genesis before Abraham and Sarah were fully on board with the kind of faith that, that brought their son Isaac into being. God appeared to Abraham once and asked him about Sarah. And he, she wasn't present, but she was listening on the outside of the tent apparently. And God said something to Abraham about the child being born. It had something to do with time. And Sarah laughed within herself. Now, some people have tried to, tried to say that that means rejoicing and so forth, but it doesn't. It means she laughed in, in a scoffing manner because the question she asked was, after I'm old, I mean, all this time I wanted to have a child when I was younger, and now that I'm 90 years old, now I'm going to have a child? She laughed, at, laughed to scorn at the thought. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Abraham didn't know where she was, but God did. And so God said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And here's the question he asked. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's a real life question, folks. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is what you need him to do too big for him to handle? See, this is the way that Abraham became absolutely convinced. He considered these things, as we all must. He considered these things and held fast to the promise of God. He, content, he convinced himself, he can, came to the reality, the truth, that there is nothing that's too hard for God. And the very fact that God asked it in the way that he did, is anything too hard for the Lord? Abraham had to deal with it face to face. And he answered for himself. There's nothing that's too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. I don't doubt for a moment that it was the biggest promise that he'd ever heard of. I don't doubt for a moment that it was the biggest situation he'd ever faced. But even at that, is anything too hard for the Lord? Looking under the promise of God, Abraham staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And he was fully persuaded or absolutely convinced that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Has there ever been a promise of God that he didn't perform? Has there ever been anything that God promised that he found out, well, that was a little too big for my, for my abilities. Bit off a little too much for me to chew, a little bit more than I could chew. No. There's never been anything that's too hard for him. Is the promise he's made for you and me concerning our healing too big? Is it, is it too big for God now that the doctor has diagnosed something? 
Is it too big now that the doctor has given us a timeline? Is it too big that the doc- now that the doctor has said this is incurable? Are any of those things legitimate reasons for making something too big for God to handle? I've had people many times come to me over the years and say, Pastor Mike, we prayed and believed God for my healing, but the doctor says it's incurable. How's that change the word? How does that change the word? There have been so many times where people have come to me with a bad report. Here's something that's happened. Here's something that's taken place. And I'll ask him. I'll shrug my shoulders and ask, does that change the Bible? See, God never said that healing would be ours unless the doctor diagnosed a sickness. The Bible never says that God provided healing for us through the stripes of Jesus unless it's an incurable condition. None of those things change the truth. And the truth is, Jesus bore your sicknesses and bore your infirmities. And with his stripes, you are healed. Looking under the promise of God, Abraham staggered not through unbelief. Even as Paul wrote to the Galatians and asked, the God that ministers the spirit and does miracles among you, does he do them by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Why, it's because we believe like Abraham believed. The faith of Abraham always produces miraculous results. And the Bible says you've got the same measure or you have a measure of that same faith. It's the same faith that Jesus called the faith of God or the God kind of faith. It's the same faith that works miracles today. What are you looking at? What are you looking at? Well, Pastor Mike, I'm looking at the word most of the time, but sometimes the symptoms, the circumstances are just too big for me to ignore. Well, you'll have to decide for yourself if that qualifies as Abraham's kind of faith. But it looks to me like Abraham never took his eyes off the promise of God no matter what. And Abraham's kind of faith is the kind of faith that produces results. What else do we know about Abraham? Well, I believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. And there's pretty wide, not a full consensus, but there's pretty wide acceptance that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul at the same time that he wrote the book of Galatians. And that it was a separate letter, but was supposed to be delivered and was delivered in conjunction with the Galatian letter. So that Paul was not only addressing the Gentiles in the book, the letter that we know of as Galatians, and holding fast, encouraging them to hold fast to the truth of, of uh, believing in Jesus and not the works of the law. But at the same time, he was writing to the Jewish community, the Hebrews, that was in the region of Galatia, in the region of Galatia, but then also intended to be sent to Jerusalem to tell them about the, the excellence of the ministry of Jesus and how it supersedes the law of Moses. And the reason that the book of Hebrews does not have an author, does not identify itself with anybody's uh, name as being the author, is because it was written at the same time as the Galatian letter, and Paul identified himself as the author of that. There's historical evidence in the early days of the church, writings concerning the early days of the church, that they believed and accepted, it was widely accepted, that Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. It's certainly his, his message. It's certainly his gospel. Well, assuming that's true, then the things that Paul said to the Hebrews, to the Jews in the book of Hebrews about faith and how faith should be exercised would also hold true 
for the faith of Abraham, even if Abraham isn't identified with those characteristics. We know in Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 23, Paul said, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Well, that must be a characteristic of Abraham's kind of faith too then, shouldn't it? It's the kind of faith it produces. Let us hold fast the profession or the word profession is also translated confession in the word. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised. That means that if Abraham didn't take his eyes off God's promise, then everything he speaks is going to be in line with what God said. So shall thy seed be and you are the father of nations. I've made you a father of nations. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35 it says, cast not away your confidence, therefore, which has great recompense of reward. That would have to be a characteristic of Abraham's kind of faith too then. Cast not away your confidence, which has a great recompense of reward. That means if we hear a bad report, we shouldn't give up on our confidence in the word. That means if something goes, looks like it's getting worse than getting better. That shouldn't be enough for us to turn loose of the promise of God and quit looking at that promise. Cast not away the confidence, your confidence, which has great recompense or reward. Your confidence in the promise of God will bring results, even miraculous results, every time. You can believe for your healing. You can believe for the miracle that may be necessary to change the circumstances and the situation in your body. You can do it. God didn't put it outside your reach. You're able to do it just like Abraham was. And you know a lot more about God and about faith and about how God works than Abraham ever did. You've got a lot more information about it than he did. If he did it, then you can do it. Amen. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Thank him for the truth of his word. Oh, Father, we thank you. We magnify you for your word. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but your words will never fail. The thing that is most settled in heaven is your word. It can never change. It can never fail. It can never fail to come to pass. It can never be altered. Your word is truth and your word is eternal. Thank you, Father. That by the eternal word, we know that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Father, we choose to act even as Abraham did. To quicken the dead, to quicken the deadness of our own bodies by calling things that be not as though they were. Therefore, we call our bodies healed by the stripes of Jesus. We say that our bodies are well because Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. We say that the life of God within us permeates every fiber of our being and every cell of our body. And your word is health and medicine to all of our flesh every part of our flesh father skin organs bones joints nerves brain cells every part your word is health to our bodies to all of our flesh so we call our bodies well we call ourselves healed no matter what the doctor has diagnosed no matter what the physical realities are or the facts of our flesh we say Since the word says Jesus took our infirmities, since the word says we're healed by the stripes of Jesus, we call our bodies well in Jesus' name. We call our bodies well.
And we refuse to look away from your promise, Lord. We refuse to look away from the truth, the absolute eternal truth, the unchanging eternal truth that by Jesus' stripes we were healed. That's reality for us, no matter what's going on in our flesh. We say we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. And we recognize, Father, not by our power, but by yours, that that quickens the deadness in our bodies. Calling ourselves what you say of us quickens any and every deadness in our body. Brings to life that which is not functioning properly. Restores that which is damaged or diseased or dead. In Jesus' name. Body, you line up with the word of God. In the name of Jesus. We love you, Father. We magnify you. We exalt you for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that your tender mercies are over all of your works. We thank you that your mercy is everlasting unto us because we know your name. Thank you, Lord, that even now the word of God is doing a quickening work, a supernatural work, yea, even a miraculous work in our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 One last thing I want to share with you, and this is something the Lord's really been dealing with me about for the last few months. Let me ask you a question. There's a lot of times in in the, the Gospels where Jesus restored a blind man's sight. Sometimes it was one person. There were several, a couple of times where it was two people. But it's a generally accepted thing. We all know that that's there, right? When God, through the work of Jesus, restored their sight, how well were they able to see them? Is there any chance that Jesus healed the blind men's eyes and didn't give them 20-20 vision or whatever would be considered perfect. The reason I point that out is because the devil would love for you to do anything, even the smallest and the slightest thing, to take away from the perfection or to rob you of the perfection of the work of God. The Bible says, Paul wrote to the church and said, God does all things well. And the word well means excellent God works with excellence in everything that he does so don't let the devil talk you into accepting just things getting better hold out for perfect hold out for perfect because that's the way God works and after all since it's the power of the word that brings healing and restoration to our bodies how much harder is perfect than a little better it's all supernatural anyway it's a belief of the best. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for being with us. Have a wonderful week.